Sheena Easton for your eyes only and for your ears only, the one and only Daniel Mumby. Good morning. Good morning, Richard. That's quite a corny link, wasn't it? <laughs> Never mind. How are you today? I'm slightly drenched, but otherwise okay. How are it's you? It's a nice warm studio. You'll, you'll yeah. soon dry out. Yes, it's very hot warm. in here. That's <laughs> why you're in a t-shirt. Yes, I'm fine. I'm fine. Right, let's crack on with films, because it's a busy old week at uh, the Playhouse in Annex. Apparently so. so. <laughs> yes, so shall we have a quick whiz through? This evening at 7.30, it's going to be Thor. Which is, I mean, that was in the top ten for ages and ages. It's Kenneth Branagh's uh, adaptation of a Marvel comic book. I really like Kenneth Branagh. He's you know, not just a great Shakespearean actor, but he made one of the definitive versions of Hamlet and Frankenstein, which is slowly getting rehabilitated as a result of this. I think it's good fun. I'm glad that the Playhouse aren't showing it in 3D and go in with an open mind. Good. On Monday afternoon at 4.30, uh, kids' film... It says here, Diary of a Wimpy Kid 2. Which I think, as we discussed, is perfectly fine, middle-of-the-road kid slapstick. It, the general critical consensus is, it, is that it's as good as the first film, so, yeah, it's good. It does what it says on the tin. Okay, Wednesday night, 7.30 again, um, horror film, this time, Julia's Eyes. Yeah, now that is one that I'm, I really wanted to catch the first time out, because that is... Um, it's, it's a horror film with um, an actress called uh, uh, Belen Rueda, who, if you know your Spanish horror, plays the lead is the lead actress in uh, The Orphanage, which was produced by Guillermo del Toro, whom we'll come on to when we do Kronos. It's a really interesting horror film, um, which sort of owes something to, I suppose, Roman Polanski's Repulsion, which is a very scary film. It's about a woman who, uh, his sister has been killed. Both she and her sister have a degenerative eye condition, which is slowly turning them blind, and she has to discover who's Gosh. committed this crime before she in, in turn loses her sight. It's, it's, it's not for the faint-hearted. I was about to say that. But it's, uh, but no, it, it's, it's handled intelligently, and I think that Bella Nareda is a terrific actress, so you should check it out. Right. And I'll certainly try to check it out if I'm not working. And then rather change of mood the next day, Attack the Block. Which is uh, the debut film by Joe Cornish, who of course is better known as the uh, as one half of Adam and Joe, the other half being Adam Buxton. I, I think when I reviewed this, I said I don't think it's scary or funny enough to cut it as a first-rate horror comedy, but it's clearly, considering the amount of money it's taken, it's clearly hit its target audience, and again, it looks pretty good fun. Great. So, quite a few good films to go see this week in Annick. Yes, indeed. Uh, Playhouse box office number, as ever, 01665-510-785. And while we're talking about the Playhouse, make a date in your diary now. Friday the 29th and Saturday the... what comes after that? The 30th of uh, July, 7.30, Harry Potter! <laughs> I was wondering when you get on to that. And we're going to be talking about that next week, aren't we? We will. Did you hear um, Ray Fiennes being interviewed on Five Live yesterday? Uh, he, he wasn't exactly enthusiastic. No, I to didn't. To the point at which he, well, he said to, he was asked about the uh, the Elder Wand, which has you know, got some sort of plot significance in this film, not to give anything yes. away. And he effectively admitted that he didn't understand how it worked. Oh, so, why didn't you read the books? <laughs> <laughs> well, my guess is he probably has, but then he's wanted to sort of put all that to one side now. He did say he's kept the teeth, though. He's been given them as a sort of farewell <laughs> present. That's great. Yeah, so there's lots of people trying to take um, keepsakes from the set at the end of the uh, of the shooting, apparently. Yeah. Because uh, it's been, like, eight films over quite a few years. Yeah, I mean, there is some sort of tradition of that. Like, when um, Tobey Maguire signed on to do the second Spider-Man film, he actually had a, con uh, a clause in his contract saying he could keep one of the suits after the shooting yeah. had finished. And oh, I think they did give him one yeah. of not the the proper one that was used yeah. for 
for the uh, the actual scenes, but I think one of the stunt suits he got, and then right. when they did the third one, they gave him another one as a sort of yeah. thank you present. Well, when I was uh, much, much younger, I used to work down at Leavesden, just outside Watford, just across the road from the Leavesden Studios, where mm -hmm. they made uh, the Harry Potters. Right. And I remember when they did Harry Potters 1 and 2, and uh, they had a football field outside the studio, and all the kids would come out and play uh, football at lunchtime. It was the, the grand ritual, you know, and there would be Daniel Radcliffe and the whole lot would be out there, and of course, we didn't know who he was at that stage, but, you know, you, you knew it was Harry Potter. <laughs> and by the time you got to about number five, they didn't come out and play football at lunchtimes anymore. It was obviously too old and too serious to do such things. Well, you can, sort of, of time. you can sort of tie that in with the fact that by the time you get to film five, there is no Quidditch in the film yes. anymore. Cause no, yeah. that, that's far too escapist. And which was the one where they had the Quidditch World Championships? I've only seen up to Azkaban, so is I'm probably no, not the person. Number and I, four was it? Yeah, like you, I said, yeah. I have not read the books, yeah. and I've only seen up to yeah. the third one. But which I remember for me them making that the stadium for the World Championships, and they're building this thing in the uh, what was the old airfield at Leavesden, and uh, very uh, very odd. Mm. Anyway, and if you miss um, the Friday or Saturday night, uh, it's also on the whole of the following week in the afternoon. Yes. So lots of opportunities. Right, let's crack on, shall we, with the top ten? Yes, let's, let's uh, belt through this. One or two of these we could get through very quickly, couldn't we? Parrots of the Caribbean at number ten. Which is utter rubbish, and I'm glad it's on its way out. Number nine, good reviews for it, Deli Belly. Which is a Bollywood film, which is probably why it hasn't been widely reviewed. Um, it's about three slackers who get up, who get caught up with uh, gangsters and diamond heist. The title comes from the, the medical condition, which is a kind of polite way of saying stomach upset, which is in itself is a polite way. I think it looks quite good in a sort of bawdy post-American pie sort of way. Like I say, it hasn't been widely press screened, so if anyone has seen it, give us a text. Right. Next one is uh, just about the only uh, blockbuster which has had good reviews, X-Men First Club. So far, at any rate. I mean, it's it's fine. It suffers from the usual X-Men problems of there's too many characters and the men have to walk around with buckets while the women have to traipse around with their, un in, in their underwear. But Matthew Vaughan's a good director. We'll come on to his previous film, Kick-Ass, when we look at Super. And yeah, it's fine, but not much more than fine. Right. Uh, rather less good reviews for Green Lantern at number seven. Which is rubbish and it's taking hardly any money. I mean, the main problem is it for me is that it's directed by Martin Campbell who is a really good workman-like action director, made Golden Lion, Casino Royale and The Mask of Zorro, of course, which is the first of the Zorro films and much better than the sequel. And, no, he's just He's just much better than this, and I'm disappointed that there's now going to be a, there's a mooted sequel because of the fact that it took a lot of money in America. Yeah. So we'll have to wait and see, but I hope Martin Campbell's going to disassociate himself from it. Another film we're not inspired by at number six, The Hangover Part Two. Rubbish. Right, <laughs> Larry Crown at number five. Which I'm still in division about because I like both Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts, although the latter has effectively spent a lot of her career just turning up, picking up the cheque and smiling. Have you seen her in Hook? Yes. When she plays Tinkerbell, and that is yes. just a case of, I'm Julia Roberts, I'm going to come along and smile, where's my check? Um, although it's, this is a much better film than Hook. I like the idea of, no, a mainstream comedy about middle-aged people sort of finding love and trying to rebuild their lives, but it isn't as funny as something like You've Got Mail, which Tom Hanks did about 12 years ago, something like that, that's the one with him and Meg Ryan. You do have to suspend disbelief a long way to believe that he could work in Walmart and she could be a down-and-out teacher. But if you can get beyond that, it'll be okay. Okay. Number four, Bad Teacher. Is Which, it a bad film? It is. It's not funny. If you've seen the trailer, you've pretty much seen the film, and Justin Timberlake continues to squander all the goodwill he built up from the social network. <laughs> We're not doing well here, are we? Uh, Kung Fu Panda 2 at number three. Which is okay. It didn't need to be in 3D, and but there... <laughs> 
the background design's quite good and I like Jack Black and Angelina Jolie, it's probably taken enough money for us to get a third instalment yeah. in a couple of years' time. I think I said last week I'd seen number one in the series and I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, and I mean, DreamWorks output is a bit hit yeah. and miss, but no, that and Shrek are pretty good. Yeah. Bridesmaids at number two. Which I don't think is quite the masterpiece that a lot of people say it is. I mean, I... I'm very sort of sceptical about Judd Apatow and his particular brand of comedy. On the other hand, I think you know, all the articles that came out about it analysing whether the film was about can women be as funny as men, I mean, that debate has been going on way back since Smack the Pony, right. which for me is one of the high watermarks of you know, an all-female cast, uh, with Duma Keekin in, of course. And there are sections in the film which I think don't work like you know, certain bits of the gross-out humour. There's one joke involving a sink, which I'm not going to mention, but... It's if you like that sort of, like I said, the bawdier end of comedy in the you no, know, the wake of of American Pie and that sort of thing. It'll probably be more your sort of thing. If on the other hand you're like me and you like your comedy a little bit more sort of acerbic, then I think you'll sit there a bit bored. It's sounding like the pick of the bunch this week, though. Well, because you're not going to appreciate number one, are you? Well, yeah, I said I'd keep this short. So Transformers, vile. <laughs> Great. Truth so, in my word. Yeah. So I think we can recommend all the films at Anik Playhouse this week. We can. And out of the rest? X-Men is probably the, the only one left that I'd recommend. <laughs> okay, fair enough. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live from, from Anik. This is Lionheart Radio. This week's cult film, then. Kronos. Do, um, do you want me to set it up and then yes. you'll play the music? Okay. Yeah. Um, before I... Before I said at the film, because we're, we're in sort of vampire territory with this week's one, um, did you see um, the Duchess High School's production of Anik about 18 months... Um, if, of Dracula, sorry. Yes, I did. Yeah, that ago. was really good. I really enjoyed it as well, yes. but that sort of ties... And that sort of ties in with with Kronos because of the vampire connections. And yeah. the, incidentally, just as a, a sort of selfish plug before we move on, if you like the... If you went to see that production and liked the lead actor as Andrew Cheen was playing Dracula, his band, The Deadly Pineapples, are going to be on my show next week. Oh, right. So that's something that's to tune in for. Too. So, yeah, a Kronos from 1993, debut film by Guillermo del Toro, who is one of the best directors working today. Mark Kermode, who's a critic I greatly admire, described him as the new Orson Welles, which is high praise indeed. I mean, his his directorial range is is extraordinary. I mean, on the one hand, you've got his his blockbuster stuff like Blade 2, which is another vampire film, Hellboy 1 and 2, and this film called Mimic, which is about sort of mutant cockroaches running havoc in uh, in Los Angeles. But on the other hand, you've got his, his very strange foreign language fantasy work, things like um, The Devil's Backbone, which is a very good Spanish ghost story, Pan's Lab which is, I think, his most famous work, and uh, that, um, I think it was nominated for the Palme d'Or and several Oscars. It didn't win, but it was a really extraordinary piece of work. But he's not just a director, he's, you know, he's a prolific author, he's a poet, he's a video game designer, and he's a very prolific producer. He uh, was most famously involved with The Orphanage, which was directed by a guy called Juan yeah. Antonio Bayona, although it's properly a Guillermo del Toro film because it's got the same sort of Spanish Gothic design and wonderful, intelligent horror. He was, of course, down to direct The Hobbit until recently, but because of the wranglings with MGM's finances, he had to... He ran out of time, essentially, so they, he went off to film what was going to be his adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, which would have been really good, but sadly that's fallen through as well. This film is also notable for the fact that it begins his artistic relationship with two actors that he's worked with throughout his career. One of them is Ron Perlman, who uh, has been in things like, well, he's in Hellboy 1 and 2, playing Hellboy. He's a very sort of angular character actor. And uh, there's this actor called Federico Lupi, who's this kind of, he's an elderly actor, he's about 75 now, something like that, but he turns up in a lot of his films. If you've seen Pan's Labyrinth, he has a cameo performance at the end as the king of the underworld, who sort of turns up in all his glory, and he's really charismatic. It was made for about 
$2 million in 1993 and was recently voted by TheVampireMovies.com <laughs> as the 16th greatest vampire film of all time. What an interesting website. Yes, they know a thing or two <laughs> yes. about vampirism. So, to set it up before, because you've got a section of the score which I'd like to play, um, it, it, we start off with a prologue set in 1535 where an alchemist is developing a mechanism, and it's not quite sure what this mechanism is, which he believes will give people eternal life, and we see if you know your vampire fiction, um, a body, a cadaver, hanging upside down at the back of his study, and there is blood collecting in basins. And I mean, if you know your vampire fiction, that's a very familiar trope. Uh, we then cut to the alchemist's body being discovered underneath the rubble of a collapsed building, and then it cuts forward to the present day, where we have uh, Federico Lupi playing an antique dealer called Jesus Gris, and the name Jesus will become important later on. Um, him and his granddaughter, they find this strange golden device shaped like a scarab beetle in the base of this statue of an angel. And he's just holding it in his hand kind of wondering what it is, at which point it sprouts metal legs and bites his hand and uh, injects him with some kind of solution and it's not quite sure what it is and there's various shots of the inside of it which looks like there's an insect inside but we're not quite sure what's going on. We soon discover that this device is the Kronos device of the alchemist and it's being hunted by an elderly businessman called Dieter and his aggressive American son who's played by Ron Perlman. So at this point, I think we should play a bit of the soundtrack yeah. to give you a, a feeling of the mood. I should just say, uh, this is actually the soundtrack to the trailer, which has no other words, which right. uh, doesn't make for great radio, other than it is fantastic music. And you should go onto the uh, internet and have a look at the trailer. It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But the music, well worth a listen. <laughs> Music. That's fantastic, isn't it? Yes. Really sets the mood for Kronos. Um, it's important to un to understand Kronos. So you have to look at it in terms of um, the kind of the vampire revival of the early nineties. I mean, you can sort of we're living in the middle of a, of a sort of vampire resurgence in its in, in our own time because of Twilight and um, things like True Blood on TV and Guillermo del Toro's own novels called The Strain. Um, but you can contrast that to the kind of the previous wave of vampirism coming back in the early 90s, which I suppose you might have caught a bit of because you had things like um, Interview with a Vampire, which was based yeah. on the Anne Rice book that had Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise in. You had John Landis' crime drama Innocent Blood, which is about a, a vampire who's, mistake, who's framed for killing a gang boss and she has to help yeah. the police while resisting the urge to bite them all the time. You've got comedies like 
Vampire in Brooklyn, which is one of Eddie Murphy's weaker efforts, but there are a couple of interesting things in it. And at the centre of this kind of new wave, you've got Francis Ford Coppola's bonkers retelling of Dracula. That's the one with, with Gary Oldman, Winona Ryder, and the one in which Anthony Hopkins plays Van Helsing and basically walks around shouting, Dracula! <laughs> in the worst Dutch accent he's ever come up with. It's a bit like the ones he's spent in the 60s and 70s, really. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, the, it's, it's all, it, all of this stuff links back to the great original Hammer wave with things like Blood for Dracula and Curse of, and that, and Curse of Frankenstein, those kind of films which were all about, which on one level were just all about sex because you had sort of phallic fangs and heaving bosoms and that sort of thing. So, you had this kind of early 90s wave which sort of took vampirism back to the deep well of sex because there'd been a couple of efforts in the late 70s, um, like things like Giorgio Romero's Martin and David Cronenberg's Rabbit, which had sort of tried to move it away from that. But it's often the case that when there's always an appetite for vampirism as just an allegory for lust and it's, it sells very easily. But in the midst of these, this sort of hypersexual renaissance, you've got Kronos, which is the one of these films which always gets overlooked, but is actually the one that's trying to move the mythology on a bit and actually saying, no, vampirism doesn't have to be all about sex. And you can look upon this as the long-term harbinger of um, a really great Swedish vampire film called Let the Right One In, which came out about three years ago. Um, was recently remade as Let Me In, although the remake was rather inferior. Kronos is a film in which it basically says, no, vampirism, nothing to do with sex. Vampirism is about ageing, it's about loneliness, it's about the fear of death, and, and, stay with me, it's about the relationship between Mexico and the USA. Now, that might seem a bit unusual. Bit geopolitics. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I'll come on to that point later because it sounds like an odd thing to say, but you yeah. will understand once yeah. I've explained the characters. Now, it's a horror film, let's be clear about that. And one of the things about, um, there's, uh, there are several tests for kind of spotting a good filmmaker, and one of them is you, you give him or her a kind of collection of hackneyed bits or very well-worn genre conventions and you say, okay, make something which is, on the one hand, very conscious of where it comes from, but you know, do something interesting with it, make it memorable. And on that level alone, Kronos is brilliant because you've got all the hallmarks of, you know, a classic vampire film. So, you know, you've got the, you've got the, the eerie, dark protagonist in the shape of the Kronos device. You've got a fair amount of gore because a lot of vampire films are yeah. bloody, even if in the case of something like, well, a couple of the original Hammer films where a lot of the blood is implied because there was only some much they could show in the 1950s and you have of course the, the the relatively innocent protagonists who are caught up in this and have in the case of those who get bitten have to adjust to the fact that they are becoming the undead and it's yeah. a question of you know at what point do they become undead and what point do they stop being human and is there any way back from that as i said there are no connotations in chronos with no, vampirism is not associated with sex or lust, and it is in complete opposition. So in, in the case of Hammer, where, like I said, it is, it is about sort of heaving chests and phallic fans piercing victims. I mean, you don't, in the same way, the Alien is a very They're phallic They're almost film. a bit camp for me, the old Hammer ones. Well, they do look a bit camp now, but at the time they were, pr they were pretty well made. Yes. So, I mean, certainly for the little money that they had, and so you know, Christopher Lee, of course, doing his thing. Great. Yes. <laughs> um, so in the absence of that, you have things like um, people's skin peeling like various layers of wallpaper and of course the intricate design of the Kronos device itself which has got sort of complicated clockwork and it's all made of gold and it's got yeah. this strange needle coming out of the top of it. The closest thing in Kronos that comes to anything sexual is a sequence about halfway through where Federico Lupi, he's at a, a New Year's party and he's followed a guy into uh, the gent's toilet who's had a nosebleed and he's kind of hanging around trying to resist the urge to drink blood and then he licks the guy's nosebleed off the floor and the, that scene is shot so clinically as if to say you cannot get aroused by this there is absolutely yeah. nothing that will turn you on or titillate you so it makes that very clear 
So, in the absence of sex, you have a story which is focused around aging and the fear of death, which hints at the central dilemma of vampire fiction, which is, do you want to live forever at the cost of losing your soul, or do you keep your soul in the hope of getting to heaven, but on the other hand, you live constantly in the fear of death? And that's a dilemma which kind of runs throughout, well, not just Bram Stoker's work, but Anne Rice as well, to yeah. a, a different extent. And both of the elderly characters in the film sort of choose the former in the sense of no the soul is irrelevant because i want to live forever but the difference is that they do it for different motivations because on the one hand you've got the elderly businessman called uh, dita who's ron perlman's father who has the manual needed to understand the chronos device and when to use it and how to use it and pursues the device basically so he can stay alive so that his nephew won't inherit his business empire because he and his nephew don't get along um but on the other hand you have jesus played by uh, federico lupi who gets bitten completely by accident and only starts using the device once he notices its physical benefits because yeah. his hair starts growing back and he he starts being able to run up and down stairs that he could just hobble up before and he he feels much more physically refined the desire for him to possess the device is it's the same as Dieter's, but it's motivated less by selfishness as a desire for, well, let's see what this can do for me with regard to me helping other people, because he has a very strong relationship with his granddaughter. And like Dracula, there is a sense that Jesus is becoming weary of eternal life, because you know in the Bram Stoker novel there's all sorts of things about um, Dracula's brides sort of giving him a bad time and him yeah. getting sort of fed yeah. up with them. And in the end, it's no, the kind of the ending of Kronos is about the last vestiges of humanity coming out of him and saying, no, actually, if this is going to hurt the people I really care about, then eternal life will have to wait, essentially. I mean, we don't want to give away the ending because it is quite heartbreaking. But um, suffice to say, there is that theme running through it. The theme of ageing is also quite present in the visuals. The film is shot by a guy called Guillermo Navarro, who's a really great cinematographer, has done everything from you know, Stuart Little and the Spy Kids films to um, the most recently he's working on the fourth and fifth Twilight films. Right. So he's, you know, that's, yeah. that's his, uh, he's got precedent in this. He also won an Oscar for his work on Pan's Labyrinth, so I like him already. And the cinematography of Kronos is that it's very, very washed out. You've got sort of dark, pale woods, you've got faded reds, as if the whole world around you is sort of decaying and waiting for death. And even in sort of the bright scenes, like the New Year's party, when everyone's sort of celebrating and there's balloons going yeah. off, it's there's sort of very pale blues and all the kind of, um, all the kind of very bright colours have been titled. I don't know whether it's done by pre-fogging, which is um, a process where you you expose the celluloid early, so all the... All right, yeah. Yeah, pre-fogging is a technique where you, you expose a piece of celluloid early, so all the bright colours come out, and then everything you shoot in the meantime means sort yeah. of... Yeah. It was done on you know, things like the Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate and so forth. Yeah. Um, for horror fans like me, there are two big sort of influences on Kronos from sort of in terms of its horror legacy and one of them is John Carpenter but I'll start with this because this is the one we're any familiar yeah. with and the influence in that is the extraordinary makeup I mean Guillermo del Toro cut his teeth working for makeup artist Dick Smith who did all the makeup effects for The Godfather and indeed I think all three Godfather films so a guy who knows his stuff and whether that's you know, Marlon Brando's facial makeup or the scribs going off on yeah. Sonny Corleone's chest when he gets when he gets gunned down in the first film and I think that the work of this makeup artist is a guy called M. Carajal, I couldn't get his first name, is up there in some cases with the thing and there is a sort of there is a further connection with Carpenter I suppose in the sense that you remember me talking about Halloween and saying that one of the things about Halloween is that it took it presented Halloween as something which had become institutionalised and that it was no longer scary and showed, actually, you're wrong, it is scary. Yes, yes. In the same yeah, way as there is a yeah. line in Kronos where he's saying, oh, it's just a toy. What are you What are you filling with that for? It's just a toy. When actually it's the thing that you do need to fear because it's, it's the source of eternal life, but it's also the thing that's going to claim your soul. 
There is also a connection with um, a great horror writer called Clive Barker, who has, who has directed a couple of films. He directed things like Hellraiser and Nightbreed, but he's better known as a novelist. And it's the same suggestion in the design of the Kronos device as there is in the puzzle box in Hellraiser, which the guy solves at the beginning and then Lucius, the Cenobites, who are from hell. Yeah. And it's the, you've seen Hellraiser? Uh, yes, yes. You yeah, surprised me. Did you like it? I'm trying to remember now. Yes. Uh, um, you, no, you've kind of thrown me with that. Um, so yeah, that, but there is the same suggestion in Barker's work of great evil coming forth from something which appears to be of great beauty. And in, in Barker's case with his monsters, he wanted to make them as physically expressive as possible so you would sort of embrace them in a sort of twisted and sort of corrupted way. Kronos is also a deeply religious film um, in its use of iconography and its exploration of the meanings behind both life and death. I mean, that's another classic vampire trait of... Uh, no, the act of becoming a vampire is a rebellion against the laws of nature and therefore against the law of God. Because no, yeah. in, in that in the time when you know, Bram Stoker and so forth were writing their work, it was very much believed that the laws of nature had been set in stone by what happens in the Bible. And in, if you compare this to the Coppola version in the nineties, there is a moment early on in the Coppola version in which Dracula loses his wife. Uh, before he's a vampire, I think, and sort of declares war on heaven, saying that I will not rest until I find her, and then he decides to become immortal by whatever means. There isn't such a, a direct declaration in Kronos, but the relationship between, you know, on the one hand, I want to be you know, a God-fearing man who lives in the, in the world now, and on the other hand, I want to be a vampire so I can live forever, is shown by the fact that you know, Jesus is sort of becoming more and more dependent on the device. There's a moment about halfway through again when he... He's been bitten by the device once, and he's kind of weighing up whether or not he wants to take on its fluids again. So he's, he's holding it in his hand, and he's reciting the Lord's Prayer in a quivering voice <laughs> while it's biting him. And it's the whole idea of, you know, you know, the passage in the Bible where it talks about, you know, serving two masters. Yes. And yeah. uh, do, is your heart in the spiritual world, or is it in yeah. the material world? There are other theological connections because of the nature of the device itself, which, you know, the, the idea that it's created by an alchemist. I mean, alchemy was a profession which sought to blend the material and the spiritual together. It was the whole idea of using the scientific method as a means to prove God. Yeah. And in this case, you know, that's in the work of Thomas Aquinas and so forth, because in the medieval times, science and philosophy were quite intertwined, whereas now they're quite separated. Yeah. And there is, a, there is a subtext in the film about the idea of um, if vampirism existed, what sort of threat would it pose to organised religion? And the argument in the film is that if you have something which takes away the fear of death, it takes away the possibility of death, you also have something which takes away the fear of death and therefore the incentive to, you know, to repent and to live a good life. And that's, that's shown in a couple of sequences where um, you have these angel statues which the device has been buried in and then cockroaches come out of the, of the statue's eye and you can see that what's beautiful on the surface is actually rotting slowly yeah. away because you know, yeah. this subtext of you know, vampirism or you know, anti-faith is eating away at it. Now we come on to the political connotations, and I said you had to stay with me at this point because this is this is the allegory which is sort of stretching. So what's the story here? Well, it is an allegory for Mexican U.S.-Mexican relations because of the fact that I mean, quite apart from the fact that Guillermo del Toro is Mexican and has a very twitchy relationship with Hollywood at the best of times, um, you have it characterized in terms of the bloodsucker and his victim because um no jesus christ federico lupi's um character is you no know, mexican or spanish so mexico is the victim it is well yeah i mean the u.s is the great bloodsucker yeah and of course you know, the, the americans are represented by ron paul i mean you wouldn't it's very difficult to disagree with that because of the relationship that the u.s and mexico had during the 1880s when they were sort of trading land all the time and there was a big yes. war and this uh, and 
there is the whole idea of the American characters in the film, Dieter and you know, Ron Perlman's character, they, when they discover that the Mexicans in the shape of Jesus have the device, they want it at any cost. And there are, there are moments where Federico Lupi, sorry, when Rob Perlman is slipping in and out of English and Spanish in a bid to sort of appear very friendly, but actually yeah. it's just, I'm using your language to get what I want, and as soon as you give it to me, I'm going to pretend that you never existed. So there is an allegory underneath that. You, you can read into it if you like. So to sum up, so that we can get on to the new releases, I think it's a really great debut feature with all the hallmarks of Del Toro's genius. I don't think it's perfect. There are... Some of the production values in it are a little creaky, even for the day. I mean, like I say, it was very low budget, so some of that's to be expected. And I don't... Th in in terms of the connection to some of the characters, I think the the character of the granddaughter played by a young actress called Tamara Shanath, I think that could have been developed a little bit more. But as a, it, as a chiller and as a reinvention of vampire fiction, it does its job. It's really creepy in certain sections. It's heartbreaking in the way that all proper horror films should have that element of sadness because, of course, horror and fantasy and comedy are quite close together in that sort of genre spectrum. It is absolute proof that vampire fiction, there is more to it than just sex and lust and sort of dripping fangs. And if you want to read, if you want to give it the time and if it's done in the right way, you can use it to explore pretty much anything. It's not as good as Let the Right One In, but it yeah. would make a really good double bill to watch those That's two together. And it's a great trailer to watch. It is a really good trailer. trailer. IMDB.com. Mm. You can catch it for yourself. Right, so we have some music. Good idea. From the heart of the district, this is Lionheart Radio. That's rather nice, that. Maddie Stucky and Crimey River. It's got us thinking about Sinatra and the Rat Pack, Yes, it? we were talking about Dean Martin whilst, yes. uh, whilst you were listening to that. Yes, yes. Happy memories, happy memories. Thanks very much to Mick for texting in. First of all, let you know, I did get you a little leaflet, so it's in our red book about your uh, your exhibition that's going on until the end of the month with uh, John Fieldhouse. And uh, I think both Daniel and I may be down to see that at various stages. And a little question for you, Daniel. What does acerbic mean? Yeah, this is in regard, if you've just tuned in, um, we were talking about bridesmaids when we were doing the top ten, and I said that... No, it's, I prefer comedy, which is much more sort of dry and acerbic. Acerbic is, um, it's a sort of comedy with a very savage tone. So, you know, you make a joke where there's a sort of, there's serious underplay on the, on the, on the underside of it, if you like. So Woody Allen would be an acerbic comedian. Right. So At his best, of course. We've got that one. Right, next week, um, what I think I described as one of the most disturbed films ever made. And I would agree with you, yes. even though it's 43 years old, we will be doing Lindsay Anderson's If... Yes. Four dots. Shall we have a little teaser? I think we should. I remember when I was a kid seeing stills from the movie, the very idea of these English schoolboys running around with firearms was kind of like there was just something so fundamentally taboo to me. I think more than any other film that Lindsay Anderson ever made, If created the biggest schism in the audience. Because it's not that Lindsay Anderson wanted to destroy cinema, he wanted to reinvent it. As we say, a bit disturbed. Yes, quite yes. disturbed. And of course, the fantastic central performance of Malcolm McDowell. Yes. In his first screen role. So yes. If you're a fan of Clockwork Orange, this is the place to start. Yes, yes. F great film. Looking forward to that next week. As am I. And uh, described, must be one of the few films that's described as shot in English and Latin. Yes. 
Of course. Because there is that, the, that section in the middle with uh, Graham Crowden as yes, well. Yes. yes. Cycling right into the classroom. Right. Singing to be a pilgrim. Meanwhile, back to the current day, the new releases. Uh, shall we start with The Tree of Life? All right. Um, new film by Terence Malick, which is usually something worth rejoicing over. He's a very high... Are you familiar with Terence Malick at all? Uh, you're probably going to give me some titles. Uh, Badlands, Day of Heaven, Thin, oh, yes, Re Thin yes, Red Lines, yes, yes. most recently The New World. He's a very highly regarded but enigmatic filmmaker. This is only the fifth thing he's made in 30 years and he never ever gives interviews. I mean, he makes Stanley Kubrick look attention-seeking. <laughs> Let's put it like that. Uh, this won the Palme d'Or in Cannes earlier this year and it's quite a rapid turnaround because normally when a film wins the Palme d'Or it usually kind of sits around for a bit and then gets released off in the following calendar year. So, it, you know, clearly a lot of people think this is really good. The story, like a lot of Terence Malick's films, it's not that easy to explain, but uh, Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain are a couple living in America in the mid-1950s, and we follow the story of them in the past, uh, the present-day story surrounding their now adult son, who's played by Sean Penn. And in the midst of that, like so many Terence Malick films, there are lots of shots of nature and of the cosmos being formed with visual effects by Doug Trumbull, who, in a further reference to Kubrick, did the special effects for 2001. He's yeah. a very well-regarded visual effects guy. On the one hand, it's great that in the week that Transformers 3 has topped the UK box office, we've actually got a film coming out that not only wants to tell a story, but explore you know, issues about morality and purpose and metaphysics in an adult way. I mean, you could certainly never accuse Malick of you know, infantilizing cinema or dumbing it down. My reservation is that Malick's last effort, The New World, which was sort of a retelling of the Pocahontas myth, was sort of off the boil. Because the second hour of that film, where you know, Christian Bale comes to America, takes the Pocahontas character back to England, and she sees England as the New World, and that whole sort of yeah. countercultural thing, that was interesting. But the point, the problem was that up until then, there'd been an hour and a half of effectively tree-hugging and mumbling, <laughs> with Colin Farrell just coming off yeah. the boat, looking like he's yeah. wanted out of a monsoon advert. I mean, Malick has always had this great affinity for nature, and and there's a, um, an, one of the ideas in The Thin Red Line, which is a war film about uh, the Pacific, it was billed as Saving Private Ryan for clever people, was the idea of while men wage war, nature happens anyway. So you'd have these incredible battle scenes in the Pacific jungle intercut with stuff of snails going about their business <laughs> and kind of cows walking the other Slightly way. odd. Yeah, it is odd, but it's, it was... In the context of the Thin Red Line, it was quite a profound statement of, you know, mankind does not own this planet, and you shouldn't yeah. assume that you do. And he's sort of trying to make the same point here, but it, it comes across as a bit more convoluted, and a, a lot of critics have commented there's a sequence involving dinosaurs with voiceover, which is kind of a bit out of place. I think, compared to The New World, it's a partial return to form. I mean, for me, Malick has never really matched the form of Badlands, which is yeah. properly narrative, great performances by... Martin, it's Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek, I think, in Badlands, and uh, Richard Gears in Days of Heaven. So I think it's recommended in the week that it's in. Just don't expect it to be anything like his early work. So do I sense uh, BAFTA and Oscar nominations on the way? I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit early to start talking about that because a lot of the films that get sort of yeah. Oscar and BAFTA nominated won't come out until, this, until the autumn. But um, I wouldn't rule out get this getting at least a nomination. Okay. Yes. Right, um... Shall we talk about Super? Okay, um, superhero action comedy from uh, James Gunn, who's a sort of interesting director. He cut his teeth writing for Troma, which we talked about a bit when we reviewed Mother's Day, this sort of yeah. straight-to-video, often not very interesting um, video studio in the early 80s who made things like Surf Nazis Must Die and Teenage Nymphoid Barbarian in Dinosaur Hell, titles in which, no, the whole appeal of them was the title, and then the film itself was quite rubbish. Um, he previously directed a film called Slither, which was a sort of gruey horror film 
uh, about sort of killer slugs, which is a sort of homage to things like, um, you know, Starship Troopers to some extent, or you know, all those kind of bug movies of the early 70s. David Cronenberg Shivers would be the good example, because that's all yeah. about bodily mutation. The story is that Rain Wilson, who is, I think, in the American version of The Office, he's a middle-aged loser, somehow married to Liv Tyler, as you do. As you do, yeah. Yes, uh, who has recent and Liv Tyler's recently beaten drug addiction. She gets kidnapped by an evil villain played by Kevin Bacon, who does evil villains rather well these days. If you if you've seen him in Frost Nixon, of course, when he plays Nixon's chief yeah. of staff, and he's really creepy in that. Um, so he gets kidnapped, and in order to get her back, Rain Wilson decides he's going to become a superhero. So he builds himself a suit, goes around calling himself the Crimson Bolt and hitting people with a monkey wrench while saying, <laughs> Shut up, crime! And then he enlists uh, Ellen Page, who runs a comic book store, as his sort of sidekick, and they dress up in spandex and go out and solve crime. So I wanted to like it a lot because I was a big fan of um, Matthew Vaughan's Kick-Ass, which came out last year. And Matthew Vaughan, who's, you know, current film X-Men First Classes in the cinemas. And Kick-Ass was a really great film about sort of ordinary people wanting to be superheroes but having no real powers. And it sent up everything from Batman to Spider-Man and Superman. It was really good fun and a great performance by Chloe Moretz. The big problem with this is it isn't kick-ass. It's, you no know, the same idea done with less enthusiasm and, you no know, more misjudged violence in this, you know, it does essentially amount to loads of people getting hit on the head with a monkey wrench, which is funny for about ten minutes, but there's only so many times you can do that in an inventive way. And if you've seen the trailer, I mean, it looks relatively sort of cheap and amateurish because the production values are lower and the cameras are yeah. shaky and uh, Kevin Bacon's clearly doing it for next to no money, which is fine. I mean, Bacon doesn't need the money, but it's, it's... The problem is that it's it's not terrible, it's just that coming so soon after Kick-Ass, it's not going to have much of a life and it is a bit of a pale imitation. It's every school kid's fantasy to be a superhero though, isn't it? I think is it, I mean, it might, it will probably get a sort of minor cult audience in the way that Kick-Ass got a big, a big cult audience, but it's, it is sort of Kick-Ass light, but not really, because the violence is equally tough. So I should be out to the, uh, to the fancy dress shop to get my spandex then? <laughs> if you can fit into your spandex, yes. <laughs> And I speak as someone who hasn't been able to fit in that for about 20 years. <laughs> Shall we move on before I insult you anymore? Yes. We'll cut that bit out of the podcast. Yes, I'm just thinking how I shall turn up for next week's sports show. <laughs> right. Uh, now, there's two with um, pronunciation difficulties here. I shall have my first go. Film socialism. Well done. Um, new film by Jean-Luc Godard, who was once a very interesting, innovative filmmaker. He was at the forefront of the French New Wave, the Nouvelle Vague with Jean Renault. He's be Jean Renault? Jean Renoir. Jean Renault is the guy in Lyon. <laughs> <laughs> Dear me. So he's most famous for um, a film called Breathless in its original language called A Buddha Souffle, which was remade in the 80s by Jim McBride, starring Richard Gere. And there are many people who hold that the Richard Gere version is actually better. As with The Tree of Life, it's quite hard to say what the story is. Um, it's kind of set on a cruise ship in the Mediterranean with characters who are talking in various languages about politics and about culture and about philosophy. Here's the thing. Goddard has a reputation for being a sort of untouchable, which in, in sort of cinema speak means if you criticise him, you're clearly a Philistine who doesn't understand anything about film. Oh, right, so call you're me about to be labelled. Call me a Philistine, but this, <laughs> I is, see it coming. But this is utter tripe. Goddard hasn't made a good film for about 20 years. There's no cohesive narrative, there's no regard for characters, the insights are platitudinous, but worst of all for me, and this is a problem I have with a lot of Vartel stuff, there is a sort of hidden contempt for the audience. Um, when it played at Cannes in uh, 2010, there, a lot of the English 
critics reacted badly because of the fact that it wasn't subtitled, so you couldn't understand what was going on. Well, because what Godard had done is rather than subtitling everything by saying, you know, what the characters are yeah. saying at any given point, what he'd done is put gnomic subtitles on, which is that you'd have characters talking in no, hundreds of different languages, and then every so often, odd words would appear up on screen. So, in, no, somebody would talk. Yeah. Someone would be talking about sort of the political situation in Europe, and words would come up saying "good," "bad," "cheese," "milk." So, right, and it's it, uh, she gets chatting online to a guy called Charlie, whom she believes is her age, and who plays, um, I think it's uh, volleyball. Eventually, they decide to meet up, and it transpires that he is actually a thirty-year-old man. And while um, meeting her at his hotel room, um, he sexually assaults her. And uh, it's the rest of the film is about the family sort of coming to terms with that and you know, people's lives being ruined. Um, it's a very difficult subject matter, which, I mean, has been approached in a couple of ways before. There was a film last year called Catfish, which was a documentary about um, sort of people meeting each other online, which had a, a sort of very interesting twist at the end, and it was you know, very sensitively judged. Also, if because you know, we were talking about Ellen Page with um, Super, there's a film that she that she was in about six years ago called Hard Candy, which um, started off with the premise of um, a sort of um, a predatory middle-aged man meeting a teenager from online. But the difference is that Ellen Page's character then turns the tables on him and seeks to expose him. I mean, Hard Candy is a very tough film because it sort of takes yeah. the Red Riding Hood archetype and reverses it. And you know, if you if you've got a weak stomach, which I you know, compared to me, you have, <laughs> then it wouldn't be your sort of thing right. at all. But if you can sit through it, it's really, really great. And if you take, if you take it, your boyfriend to see it on a date movie, he'll be well behaved for the rest of the week. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So I think, I think that Schwimmer does a pretty good job in staying, you know, the right side of sensitive without sort of tipping over into, you know, stony-faced preaching. It does occasionally tip over into melodrama, and the trailer is has a number of scenes of people just sort of screaming endlessly and endlessly, and there's a performance by Catherine Keener in it, who's a very good actress, but in this case she doesn't have that much to do. I think that it's worth seeing for the performances, because like I said, Catherine Keener and Clive Owen are both very good. It isn't going to be the easiest thing to watch. I mean, it'll be easier than Hard Candy, but then there's quite a lot of things that are easier. So it's one to see if you're if you kind of have an interest in that subject area, but it's not going to be a feel-good film, let's put That's it that way. It's uh, a very disturbing and a very real problem. It is a very real problem, and uh, in term, so that's why I said, no, it's, it's something that you have to kind of use your own judgment with when you go in, so, no, yeah. it's not the thing to take a date to, let's yeah. put it that way. But, I mean, a lot of these constructions, you think, well, that could never happen in real life, this one can and does. Yeah, and I think they do play it quite naturalistically. So. Right, okay. The final one this week, The Princess of Montpensier. Yeah, I think you, you're doing well this week with your pronunciation. Um, new film by uh, Bertrand Tavernier, who is uh, nearly 70 years old. He previously made a film called In the Electric Mist with your friend Tommy Lee Jones, whom I know oh, you're yes. a big fan of. So. Yeah. Have you seen In the Electric Mist? No, I don't think I have. No, no. It's, it's, it's okay, actually. You should check it out. Yeah. Um, based on a book by Madame de Lafayette, which was published... You're doing very well with your pronunciation as well. I did French at AS. I think I can get away with it. <laughs> um, so... He, it's based on a book by uh, Madame de Lafayette, who was a 17th century author, who I think you know, is affiliated to the Comte de Lafayette, and it's about the titular princess who is um, deeply in love with a dashing young duke who's got sort of flowing long hair and it looks like Louis XIV. Uh, straight out of Cinderella, really, Well, isn't sort it? of, but the twist <laughs> is that she is pledged to be married to a slightly less dashing prince, and over the course of the film we see her clashing with her lovers and trying to find um, her own identity whilst they effectively compete with her. There have been a couple of sniffy reviews saying that it's essentially Bridget Jones' 
goes to France in tights because it's two very attractive men fighting over a woman. But it's so much more than that. And I think that that is very, very sniffy. If there are all the ingredients in this for a good, enjoyable, romping medieval drama. I mean, if you like stuff like um, Elizabeth or The Other Berlin Girl, or I suppose Shakespeare in Love, although that's quite different in terms of its tone, then you will enjoy it just as a, a romp, because there is a lot of swashbuckling and passionate kissing and lots of people riding around on horseback, so you get all those whistles and bells. But underneath that sort of that romping stuff it is actually a very interesting film about female identity it's about gender roles whether no in terms of women's you know personal rights and their political rights it's about religion because it takes place in the 16th century during the wars of religion in france with the catholic church it's about you no know, the level of female education it's about honor and chivalry so you've got it's it's in many ways what a good action drama should be which is on the one hand you've got the sweeping romance and the big yeah. action to sort of pull in the mainstream audience. But on the other hand, if you want to actually think about it a bit more, there is substance underneath the surface. So I think it's it's not going to be perfect, but it's a really good, solid... Does sound a good film to drama. go and see. It is, and the Tyneside will be showing it. Right, so, your pick of the week, then. Well, The Princess of Montpensier, with The Tree of Life as a sort of conditional second. Right, okay. And don't bother with film socialism. Yes, but right. then you won't have to, because no one will show it. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. Thanks very much, Daniel. We're back uh, next Saturday. Yes. 10 o'clock. Look forward to that. I'm looking forward to it as well. And if. Yes. Well. And if what? Oh, yes. if. <laughs> and people to the news. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.